This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Diana Ross there, the long and winding road. We also had Sia in there with Sweet Design. It is 23 minutes to five. on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm joined by Dennis Altman, who is a professorial fellow at La Trobe University. And in 1972, Dennis wrote the definitive Australian book at the time on homosexuality called Homosexuality, Oppression and Liberation. Dennis, welcome to the program. Hi, James. I think Long and Winding Road was a very appropriate choice. Indeed, it has been an incredible road. In 1972, when your book was published, did you ever think you would have seen a day like yesterday in the Australian Parliament? I suspect, you know, back, back in the 70s, the concern was illegality, that we were illegal, that we were defined as either criminal, sick or sinners. Uh, I think that marriage was a very long way uh, from anyone's mind at that stage. So what does this whole kind of, you know, process tell us about the state of Australian politics? I mean, the politicians couldn't agree amongst themselves. The Liberal Party's been hopelessly divided. So we got this plebiscite. What does, what does the whole thing tell us about democracy? Look, I don't think, well, I don't think it tells us very much about democracy. I think it tells us a lot about the huge cultural rifts in the governing parties because even though it took a while, the Labour Party over the last few years have moved pretty clearly to a position where they were willing to legislate a change to the Marriage Act. And the Greens, of course, have been uh, on that position now for a long time. The, the hold-up was always the fact that um, the Liberal Party was bitterly is bitterly divided between deep social conservatives and people who, at least on this issue... Are fairly liberal, but let's not get carried away because they're not necessarily particularly progressive on other issues. There's been a lot of talk about religious freedom. Uh, Tony Abbott was saying he was, you know, basically a convert now to same-sex marriage, but, uh, you know, he was, he was going to support it. But then he kind of slapped us in the face with these amendments he was pushing this week. What do those amendments tell us? Well, look, the amendment... Well, I think what's interesting, of course, is the amendments were defeated. And we had basically three full days between the Senate and the House of Representatives where essentially the same amendment kept on being moved by yet another member of the the Liberal and National Parties. And they were all about essentially winding back anti-discrimination law. Uh, They had very little to do with marriage, um, although they use marriage. Um, And I think that we need to be concerned about that, that there is this, in the name of religious freedom, which um, is a catch-all phrase, uh, conservatives are actually trying to erode some of the provisions that we have in Australia around uh, discrimination. You wrote an article in The Conversation this week that pointed out that the campaign for marriage equality was in part built around around human rights. Uh, but that's quite an unusual kind of you know concept to be pushing in mainstream Australian politics, isn't it, considering what's happening at the moment on Manus, for example? Um, Look, I'm so glad. I I always find it necessary to bring Manus into the conversation because if you you look at what essential 
basic human rights are. They have to begin with the right to some sort of personal safety and security. And that's, of course, what the guys on Manor so, so clearly are being denied at the moment. Um, I think that uh, we haven't in Australia had a tradition in the way the Americans have of talking about rights. And I think that the, the marriage campaign, um, probably very smart, they didn't actually talk that much about rights. They talked a lot about equality. They talked a lot about a fair go. And, of course, they talked a lot about using that slogan, love is love. Um, and that's, that really caught on. Um, the cynical side of me, I don't want to be too cynical today, James, we're still celebrating, but, you know, the cynical side of me says, where's sex in all of this? Um, well, it wasn't mentioned very much at all during the I campaign. Think, I think that's the point. Um, and I think, that the cam- I think that the Yes campaign, look, in some ways, it's obviously easier to run a campaign that's talking about inclusion. The No campaign was about exclusion. Uh, the no cam- and I think the reason the No campaign failed is that essentially most people probably thought, you know, this isn't that important. If it, if it means so much to people to be allowed to get married, then for heaven's sake, let them get married. I mean, my sense is that was the dominant feeling uh, in a lot of those electorates in Australia where people were quite surprised that the poll produced, you know, a strong positive vote. Uh, Remember, we got a yes vote in every electorate in WA, South Australia and Tasmania. And that's not, I think, what people expected at the beginning of this process. And it's extraordinary considering in Tasmania and WA, uh, homosexuality wasn't legalised that long ago, really, was it? I mean, 1994 in Tasmania. Yes, but again, you know, what's interesting is that what we've just seen around the marriage debate is that a small group of social conservatives can actually hold up something that most people are in favour of. And the same thing was true of the laws um, that made homosexual behaviour a crime in Tasmania. It was all held up for a very long time uh, by the Legislative Council in Tasmania, which was essentially a feudal stronghold of right-wing conservatives. And, of course, there is something rather wonderful in the fact that one of the primary people involved in that campaign in in the 90s, Rodney Croom, has been a prominent campaigner in the marriage debate, and you might have seen him, one of the many people um, in Canberra last night celebrating at Parliament House. at the drinks I did see Rodney uh, Uh on the TV, and I was absolutely delighted to see him. I also saw him, of course, in in the chamber as well, both in the House and in the Senate. And, uh, you know, he's been campaigning so long on this issue, and he just looked so happy. Yes, and I mean, to me, I, I don't usually watch Parliament, and I must say that watching the parliamentary debates yesterday, the best bit was when they went to the galleries, and probably like me, you recognised a lot of our friends sitting up there cheering on the speakers. Um, It was a ridiculously long and prolonged debate, and you wondered how often uh, people like Bob Catter needed to get up and and talk nonsense, but, you know, that's, that's the reality of parliamentary process. He's kind, he kind of has lost the plot on the issue a couple of times over, over the last few weeks, hasn't he, when he was talking about the plebiscite and then launched into this thing about, you know, this tirade about, well, the, you know, a big focus for him is the number of people who get killed by crocodiles in North Queensland every month. I think I missed that particular gem. Um, I was, I mean, it was 
in some ways, if you had the patience, it was actually quite interesting. And of course, what was fascinating was how real the divisions in the Liberal Party were. Um, the Labor Party are a very disciplined machine. There's no question that there are people in the Labor Party who probably would have liked to support a couple of the amendments, and they were told very clearly they were not to say anything and they were not to vote for them. So essentially, the whole debate was really within the Liberal Party, and there were some wonderful moments. You know, seeing Christopher Pine walk across the floor of Parliament uh, and sit there with Labor and the Greens against the hardliners in his own party was, you know, we don't get to see that that often. And the incredible scene after the vote when Warren Inch uh, picked up Linda Burney. Indeed. Uh, that was just absolutely beautiful. Indeed. Well, Warren Inch has been a remarkable figure. Um, and I think everybody listening knows about Warren Inch, who, you know, comes from northern Queensland. Is He a, was a crocodile farmer. Uh, he was a crocodile farmer. Uh, Warren Inch is an interesting guy. I mean, he, uh, I met Warren Inch a long time ago when I went up to Rockhampton to give a talk. Um, he's one of those people who is genuinely moved by stories of hardship. And I think that Warren Inch had known... I'm not sure I've got the story completely right, but it's basically right. I think he'd known a young gay guy who'd killed himself. And that had clearly affected Warren Inch very deeply. And he took it on board in a very real way. And um, I think the reality is that without his support, the four openly gay liberals would have found it much, much harder uh, to have come out publicly against the party leadership in the way they did in a, you know, the process that actually led to this very long, convoluted, um, complicated and expensive process we've all just gone through. It's ironic, isn't it, that the Liberal Party has the highest number of out gay MPs in the, in the whole federal parliament. It's quite um, ironic considering their, their position on this issue. Well, it isn't, of course, ironic if one accepts the basic principles of liberalism. I think, I think what is more ironic, perhaps, is that there are people in the Liberal Party um, who really are not liberal. In any in any traditional sense of that word, um, but you know, let's. There are. You're right. There are more out uh, uh, members of parliament. I think it's interesting that all the openly gay men are liberal, and the open lesbians are Labour. Um, I'm not quite What's sure. That about? Well, I don't think we can read too much. You know, the sample size is too small. Too small. But um, I think, uh, you know, there's no question that having out members was very important. I think um, Tony Burke, who is, you know, a very senior Labour figure, is actually on record as saying that it was something Penny Wong said uh, that changed his position. And Tony Burke became a very strong advocate for same-sex marriage, even though, and I think this is important, his electorate was one of the electorates that voted very strongly against it. Um, and one of the things people have to bear in mind is that a few of the Labor guys actually did stick their necks out, knowing that they were not taking the position most of their electors were taking. What do you think about some of the MPs who actually abstained? Uh, and some of them are on the record as saying if it's the will of the Australian people, they'll vote for it. I mean, Pauline Hanson, for one, said that a couple of years ago. Was abstaining a cop-out, do you think? Or was it just um, a political necessity? I think necessity? that if we're going to do a list of all the things that are wrong with Pauline Hanson... Abstaining, abstaining on this is Abstaining on this is not one of them. You know, what I think is interesting is that when it came to it, in the Senate, 
a sizable minority voted no. I mean, I think it's interesting that by yesterday in the House of Representatives, only four of them were prepared to publicly vote no. And clearly there was a bit of a rush to get out the door. Um, you know, one rather hopes that Tony Abbott, Barnaby Joyce and Scott Morrison got caught in the scruffle and fell over. But I have no evidence that, that actually happened. Uh, but I think it's interesting what, what you say is right. They, they after all, created this process. Uh, it was particularly odd for the people. I mean, I named three people who were, you know, central to the whole peculiar process put in place. And it was very odd having done that for them then not to even stay in the chamber for a vote. Matthias Cormann was an interesting one because he's been well on the record many times saying he opposed uh, same-sex marriage, but he actually voted for it. Do you think um, that that's because he's the finance minister and no, he actually I think, funded I this think, I think Matthias Cormann, you know, I hate in some ways to say this. Uh, these are not people I have uh, fond regards for, but I think Matthias Cormann and Peter Dutton behaved very responsibly. They both said, we want this process and we want this process to work and we will vote according to the results of the poll. Uh, I think there were a number of people on the Conservative side and probably a couple of people on the Labor side who did actually find it very difficult to vote yes, uh, to vote for the, uh, the bill yesterday. Um, but I think Cormann in particular, who has consistently said, we know his position, but he was responsible as minister for the process. Uh, I think he took that seriously. And probably, too, the fact that he's a senator for Western Australia and it voted yes in every election. Uh, not necessarily. Look, I, you know, part of my sense is that Matthias Cormann is the only grown-up in the Turnbull government. Um, and that's, that's a pretty big responsibility. Um, but, yes, I, I, I think... I don't think we should make too much of, of what individual uh, MPs did because I think the reality is that... The movement had created an impetus that clearly was reflected in the vote, and any smart politician could see that if they had not, if Parliament had not passed legislation yesterday, there would have been a huge reaction. Um, I think most people, even people who voted no, would have been very, very angry uh, if the, if the outcome of spending 160 million, whatever, 120 million dollars, a uh, huge amount of time and energy, if that was then discounted, that that clearly wasn't going to wash. And I think that's why the prime minister is so relieved, um, because had Parliament not passed legislation yesterday, it would have put him in a very very awkward position. Well, it's probably the only issue, too, that's going to be seen as a positive legacy from, from Malcolm Turnbull, isn't it? I mean, he's been so ineffectual, largely because of the almost hung parliament and the divisions within his party. But really, this will be seen, I think, by history as his signature issue. Um, look, one of the interesting things, of course, you never know what history will see, uh, because it may also be seen as a remarkable weakening of parliamentary government. Uh, what is, after all, unique is not the fact that Australia has now accepted same-sex marriage. Pretty well every other Western liberal democracy in the world has already accepted same-sex marriage. I'm not sure you can claim as a signature achievement something where you're actually in the, in, you know, lagging behind almost every other comparable country. What Turnbull may well be remembered for is having presided over a very strange process that goes against the basic principles of 
representative government, and it's a particularly odd legacy for a Liberal Prime Minister. Um, Do you think that this issue um, being resolved in the way that it has uh, will just further those schisms within the Liberal Party and actually uh, increase the resolve of people from their hard right to get rid of the Prime Minister in the next few months? Look, I don't think they're going to get rid of the Prime Minister, mainly because I don't think that there is anybody silly enough in among the senior ministers to want to come into... You know, they, they saw what happened to Julia Gillard when, when uh, she came in by replacing a sitting Prime Minister. I think in that sense, Turnbull's safe, but I think that um, the schism in the Liberal Party is certainly very real, and the bitterness... Uh, and you could see that reflected as the day went on yesterday. And it sounds that, you know, James, you like me, I was watching it on and off. And you could actually see in, among some of the conservative liberals extraordinary bitterness. Um, I find it very odd because they kept on saying, remember the five million people who voted no. But these are the people who have consistently talked to us about the mandate of the government. Mm. Now... If you're going to be, on the one hand, claim that once a government's elected, they have a mandate to do absolutely everything they've said they'll do, but then you turn around and say, well, here we've got 60% of the country saying something, but we shouldn't actually give them everything they want. There is a, some lack of logic in that. A lot of us are also breathing a sigh of relief because we feel that the marriage issue, even though it's so important, has actually sucked a lot of oxygen out of the GLBTIQ community in relation to dealing with other issues. What do you think the next big campaign will be? Um, look, well, before we talk about the next campaign, I think I think there's a really interesting question because, yes, on the one hand, it probably it has certainly sapped a lot of time, energy and resources. On the other hand, it has probably meant that a lot of people for the first time ever have become political. Um, and I've been very struck by the fact that a lot, of, a lot of people who never really quite thought that politics matter suddenly became very involved. They've been out there door knocking, telephoning. Uh, I think there's a whole new energy and I don't think it'll just suddenly disappear forever. So having said that, then the question is, where will it go? Um, I would very much hope, but I think this is hope rather than expectation, uh, that would go into thinking seriously about our obligation to asylum seekers, and in particular people who are seeking asylum because of their sexuality. And one of the things that the marriage campaign very carefully didn't want to talk about uh, is the connection. If you're going to start talking about fair goes and equality and human rights for, for queers, uh, what about those guys... Uh, on manners, who actually have fled their countries because of their sexuality, which it's always impossible for them to publicly um, acknowledge in the environment uh, that they find themselves in. It's interesting because uh, we've covered refugees quite a bit over the last few weeks on this program mm -hmm. and also on Twitter, and the yep. biggest reaction that we get, both in terms of positive responses and negative responses, is when we talk about refugees. Uh-huh. Uh, you also mentioned in your article that was published in The Conversation some dramas in Perth in relation to, to refugees um, and, and, and queerness, and I think something about a float, no, was it? No, I, no the, the, the Perth reference, if mm. I remember rightly, was a teacher at a Baptist school in Perth was sacked uh, after a couple of his students had picked him as gay. 
Um, now they hadn't. I hasten to say they hadn't picked him as gay because they met him on Grindr. You know, there was there was no suggestion of any sort of. There was nothing lewd. There was nothing lewd, and you know nowadays. Um, so many things are considered lewd, one has to be very careful. No, this is a clear case where the school said we can't, we will not have a, a, a teacher who is a homosexual. Now, interestingly, under Australian anti-discrimination law, um, with all the religious freedoms that we're apparently so th- uh, threatened to lose, that is quite legal. Religious schools can sack people uh, because of their sexuality, and they could also have sacked him if they'd found he was living in a heterosexual relationship that was, you know, outside marriage. Um, I think that there will probably be more cases like that. Uh, One expects that, at least in some areas, there will be a some sort of payback by at least the, you know, the the hard core of the no campaign. Um, I don't think they're just going to sit there quietly and say, oh, well, we lost, let's go on to the next thing. So I think, unfortunately, we may find that some of our energies are going to be about protecting very basic uh, anti-discrimination provisions, and I would hope, and then maybe this should be the next big campaign, um, insisting that they apply to religious institutions. Dennis Altman, it has been a great pleasure talking to you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. And you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.